Hello, and welcome to the fifth and last program in our current series, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. In our previous four sessions, we saw that our first four letters of Calvin's tulip tumbled when compared to the scripture's teaching on these four doctrines. You'll recall that each letter of TULIP stands for a major doctrine of Calvinism. T was for total human depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. Remember also that Calvinists consider these points to be the undergirding foundation for their understanding of theology and of their God. As a young man, I called Calvin's system my suit of theology. At that time, I believed there were only two brands of suits to choose from, either Calvinist brand or Arminianism brand. Now, because I believe the Bible clearly teaches that a genuine believer is eternally secure and cannot lose his or her salvation, I base that on Jude 24 and 25, 1 Corinthians 3.15, and Romans 8.29 and 30. Therefore, I rejected Arminianism and concluded that, well, I must be a Calvinist since there's only two choices. As you'll recall through our series, we've taught there are more than two choices. There's a third. While I was right in my conclusion, I certainly had not studied the doctrine in any depth. But in this session, We'll now do just that. It's my hope that through these sessions, you are gaining a better understanding of the biblical definitions for these doctrines, and that you too will find the suit of theology that fits you. I have found mine, and for lack of a better name, I call it Biblicism. Join me now in our fifth session of this series where I consider the P of TULIP. Calvinism's perseverance of the saint, and see if it, too, must tumble. I've entitled this session, Perseverance. It really means what? When it comes to Calvinism's last point, perseverance of the saints, I believe that I was in agreement because I assumed it meant that I couldn't lose my salvation. And I based this upon verses such as Jude 24, where I read, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And then 1 John 5, verse 13, These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that word know means to know with certainty. An occasion arose, however, that prompted me to look into Calvinism's actual teaching on this doctrine, and I was surprised to discover that Calvin's definition may leave the believer uncertain about his or her election and their salvation. The occasion was a message given by a Bible faculty member of a conservative Christian university. He spoke on the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Following his message, several students contacted me expressing concern over whether they were truly part of the elect and therefore whether they were saved. Now, seeking to clarify the issue for them, I began to research the subject in depth. I soon learned that some new Calvinists teach that only earnest believers, now that's those who live their entire lives for the Lord uh, from their recognition of their election, to their deathbed will prove to be the elect and will spend eternity with God. the, The implications of this teaching raises grave concerns. For it suggests a Christian life of fear, effort, struggle, and uncertainty. 
Two influential Presbyterian Calvinist writers reflect this teaching of Calvinism in their writings. They say, and I quote now, It should be obvious that the Calvinist doctrine of the perseverance of saints is not one and the same thing as once saved, always saved. End quote. Such a view creates a degree of uncertainty in a believer's life. But in contrast, the scriptures speak of a victorious Christian life that is free of fear. It is certain and abundant. For example, Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, chapter 1, and verse 7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power of love, and of a sound mind. John quotes our Lord in chapter 10, verse 10, assuring us that I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Instead, the Calvinist concept of perseverance leads to a life of uncertainty and the idea that a decline in spirituality could mean one is not elect. (laughs) This is so far from the life Paul pictured. Additionally, it leads to a Christian life of service that is motivated by fear rather than by love and gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. Now, let us now carefully look into this New Calvinist teaching and we will then compare it to the light of the scriptures that bring joy to a Christian's life. It's very important to understand the great contrast between Calvinist teaching on perseverance and the teaching of the Bible. We'll first examine the Calvinist view of perseverance as taught by the New Calvinists. In describing perseverance, John Piper, a leading spokesman for New Calvinism, indicates that our faith must endure or continue to the end of our lives. And I quote him, No Christian can be sure he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord and deny ourselves so that we might make it. End quote. We might make it? Frankly, I, I couldn't believe when I read this. In another paper stating their position on this matter, Piper and his staff affirm, and again I quote, We must also own up to the fact that our final salvation is made contingent upon the subsequent obedience which comes from faith. Key to understanding this statement is the Calvinistic approach based upon their understanding of justification. Again, according to Piper, and I quote, God justifies us on the first genuine act of saving faith. But in doing so, he has a a view to all subsequent act of faith contained, as it were, really like a seed in that first act. End quote. The Calvinist chart on on salvation reflects a really a a two-part process. According to Piper and other Calvinists, God first elects individuals before the foundation of the world. Some will have eternal life with heaven, and some will have eternal life existence in hell apart from God. At the right time in history, the elect individual is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is independent of any action on the part of the elect. Now, I've explained this much more fully in our second program of this series, so I hope you'll go back and view that. At some point later in the life of the elect person, they respond to God's regeneration by an act of exercising belief or acknowledgement in Jesus Christ. This act is called the first act of faith and initial justification. Then a life of ongoing faith through obedience to the scriptures. For many new Calvinists, this is a life following the Ten Commandments 
and its legalistic works lifestyle. Then finally, at the end, if one has enough proof of their being elect by their acts, they're finally justified. Full salvation is contingent on this final justification. You see, in other words, Christians must struggle to be obedient and holy their entire lives in order to assure that they reach final salvation. Now, Piper does allow for failure and sin, but only for incidental periods of dryness. Thus, for the Calvinist, this means uncertainty throughout life, a wondering if one is truly among the elect. I ask you, where is the joy of such perseverance? Let's consider now how Calvinist view of justification influences this understanding of perseverance by them. As already mentioned, Calvinists consider justification a two-part process. Initial justification occurs simultaneously with the first act of faith. As I've already discussed under irresistible grace, God supposedly regenerates the elect individuals at some point prior to their initial act of faith, of saving faith, if you will, thereby making it possible to be the, for them to be the elect. In other words, God regenerates them so at some point they acknowledge, and I think that's the best term for what they're doing, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And so that point comes after regeneration. You see, in essence, the individual is merely coming to an acknowledgement of what God has already done for him or her at that point in their life, this first act of faith. It is at this point that God credits the individual with an imputed righteousness that has not been fully achieved yet. It's a credit that must be borne out or earned throughout life. Time allows the person to demonstrate their election by their obedience or by their works, such as keeping the moral law of Moses. After death, all these works will be used as evidenced evidence to determine this. If there is sufficient evidence, the person is elect. If not, he or she just isn't elect. According to Calvinism, it is only at this point that individuals will know for certain that they are saved. Only then can they say with certainty, I was saved. This demonstration will occur at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. You see, for Calvinists, there is just one final general judgment in which the sheep, that's the elect, and the goats, that's the non-elect, they're separated. Those elect are for eternal life in the kingdom, and those non-elect for eternal death in the lake of fire. Clearly, Calvinism's understanding of justification influences their eschatology. Now, if you're dispensational, as I am, you realize that the great white throne judgment, as taught in the scriptures, is for the unsaved of history. We Christians, when we receive Jesus Christ, we are already past the judgment because Christ judged at the cross and he paid for our sins. Oh yes, we will see him at the Abima, and I believe that's kind of like an evaluation time, but it's not a judgment. So the great white throne judgment is not for believers, but Calvinists believe it is. You see, according to them, the final judgment of the elect reveals those who were elect and who persevered through the evidence of their deeds. Therefore, they call it the perseverance of the saints, which puts the burden on the saint. John Piper uses Abraham as his example and his explanation of this two-part justification concept. He turns us to Romans chapter 4. So please turn to Romans chapter 4 
And we can see that this is where he begins his argument, that Abraham demonstrates a two-part justification. We read in verse 3, For what saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. We are reminded, as does John Piper saying, that this takes us back to Genesis 15:6, where he notes that God declared Abraham righteous at that point. So therefore, this is Abraham's first act of faith, and thus it is Abraham's initial justification. So going from Romans 4, let's go back to Genesis 15, and we'll be able to see, according to John Piper, better a two-step process of justification. So if you'll turn back now to Genesis 15, and we're going to review this idea of the Calvinistic initial justification. And we're going to begin where God speaks to Abraham, where Abraham is considering making his steward Eliezer his heir. Okay, Genesis 15, verse 1, we read, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, to one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and tell or count the stars, if thou art able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it for him righteousness. Believed on the Lord, and the Lord counted that as righteousness. You see, when the Lord counts this act for righteousness, Piper says this is the act of righteousness. It's really initial justification. This is really just the start of the path to salvation for Abraham. There will then follow 20 plus years of Abraham's life, where he will continue to show obedience prior to obtaining his final justification. This period is recorded in Genesis 15 through 21. It's, according to Piper, the evidence of Abraham's perseverance. According to Piper, at the end of this period, Abraham achieved his final justification, which is now pictured by his subsequent and final act of faith, that that led to the birth of Isaac. Recorded over in Genesis 21. So let's go back to Genesis 21. And we'll look at verse 5. And Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. So now Abraham, a hundred years old, sees that Isaac has come in fulfillment of what God prophesied. According to John Piper, this is a clear demonstration of both initial and final justification with all these years in between. Note, however, in Genesis 21, verse 5, it does not mention Abraham's righteousness or justification. Furthermore, he does not account for the fact that Abraham did not have to wait for the great white throne judgment to have his evidence examined and be declared finally justified and righteous. Apparently, Abraham was given special exemption from the great white throne judgment. Now, I know I'm being a little humorous, but I'm trying to show you the inconsistency here. Perhaps this is so that we can see he truly was elect and had the evidence to prove it. God sort of indicates to us by these verses, and so we can know for certain. Once again, I stress this. We have an inconsistency within Calvinism. I think at this point, it's very important to define our terms. New Calvinism proclaimed this two-part justification, and they offer Abraham as proof of the doctrine. 
Now, before we can accept their definition of justification, we need to see how the Bible defines justification. We'll begin our evaluation of New Calvinism's definition of justification by first observing a 19th century Reformed or Calvinistic definition. We'll compare that to the New Calvinist definition of today. Louis Burkhoff, a well-known Reformed theologian, says, and I quote, Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. End quote. He then adds that it is a declaration, not an act or process of renewal, such as regeneration, conversion, and sanctification. Clearly, Burkhoff separates justification from New Calvinist salvation two-step process. Henry Thyssen, another theologian, reiterates the idea that justification is a declaration of God and therefore a declarative act not wrought in man, but something declared of man. It doesn't make a person upright or righteous, but it declares that they're righteous. These theologians represent a whole spectrum of systematic theology, from reform to dispensational. All agree that justification is a declaration or act by God, and that there is no suggestion of an ongoing or two-step process or the need to earn the justification. So who is right, these men or the New Calvinists? I would also add that today's New Calvinist view dominates the understanding of justification among today's millennial generation that are under their influence. For 20 years, I have offered theological classes on the internet at my Internet Bible Institute. Each class group, I ask students to define justification through an inductive Bible study. They're only allowed to use their Bible and nothing else. I don't allow them to use outside quotes or any sources outside of the Bible. Interestingly, through all these years, my students always conclude that justification is God's one-time sta one statement that an individual is declared righteous because of his or her faith in the blood of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament times, faith in the blood sacrifice that prefigured the ultimate blood sacrifice of the Messiah. Biblicists would agree that God declared Abraham justified in Genesis 15, 6. For what saith the scripture, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Grammatically, the word counted indicates a past action and means to calculate or make a judgment to declare that judgment. Let's look very carefully at this passage. It says, Abraham believed God. The context is that God promised Abraham an heir who would eventually bring forth the Messiah. Abraham did no work. He simply believed God, reflecting Abraham's trust and faith in his God, because he believed God could perform what God had promised. The same is true when Paul describes justification in Romans 3.28. And I quote, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law or without works. This clearly eliminates the thought that our works are evidence that brings us to final justification. Paul used this term, justified, in a legal sense, where it is defined in the Greek as, and I quote, saving acquittal, which takes place in the present. G. Schrenk further notes, 
once-for-all justification at the cross and personal justification in faith go together. Justification is a finished work of grace. New Calvinists and Calvinists like to take us to the Apostle James' writing to substantiate their view of this initial and final justification. So please turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messages, messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, upon a very quick reading of it, a look at it without thinking it through, it would seem that Calvinists might be right about Abraham. But let's pause here and let's think about this. Notice the emphasis of James chapter 2. It is demonstrating love of your neighbor in verse 8. Let's go back to verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. You see, in that world, James Day, our only way to make an intelligent guess if a person is righteous and saved is to evaluate their works. James is saying that within the body of believers, their works are the visible evidence of the inward, unseen Real faith. In the case of Abraham, he believed and was justified as a single act, but the rest of his life merely demonstrates that he is righteous. He had faith. Thus, James was writing of justification when viewed from a perspective of men. But Paul, in Romans, is writing it from God's perspective. Again, James is teaching the idea that men can witness, see, the effect of justification by God in a person by looking at their works. Their works do not achieve the justification because it's merely a declaration of God, but merely put it on public display. I would suggest you also look at Romans 8, 4, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Now, According to biblical evidence, we conclude that justification is a judicial declaration, a legal declaration, if you will, or pronouncement by God that an individual is counted as righteous. What on? The basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our works. Justification occurs at a single point in time and is never achieved through an ongoing process. It's a single declaration, period. This is the essence of Paul's argument given in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, where Paul used King David's own words to amplify this clear teaching on justification. For in Romans 4 and verse 6 we read, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness, what? Without works, Romans 4, 6. When John Piper defends Calvinism's two-step justification process by citing Genesis 21 as Abraham's final justification, he is denying the single judicial aspect of a one-time decision and declaration by God as used by Paul. Both the definition of the Greek word justification and the grammatical form of it support this conclusion. 
in effect, Piper is implying that God as judge sort of stutters in his initial declaration and will continue it on into the future until he final gives the final declaration. <laughs> it's interesting to note in Genesis 21, where Piper claims that Abraham reaches final justification, there is no mention of justification or of Abraham's act as being counted as righteousness. The only reference to his action or belief or faith to, is, that is counted as righteousness is back in Genesis 15. There is no mention through 21. The chapter merely confirms, demonstrates, shows that God's promise and prophecy were fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. Does the Bible teach two-part justification with final confirmation at the great white throne judgment? <laughs> no. As Romans 4, 5 clearly teaches, but to him that worketh not, that's the ongoing action of doing works, but believeth a one-time event grammatically on him that justifieth a one-time action to justifying the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Let me reread that. Believeth one event on him that justif justifies a one-time action. The ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. When Abraham believed that God would give him a son through whom the Messiah and salvation would come, he was counted or declared righteous. Abraham simply believed, for he had done nothing as yet. The grammar does not make his justification contingent on future actions. Instead, it indicates God did it all. According to Hebrews 11, verse 12, Abraham believed that God could use his aged body to bring life, and even though he was as good as dead. Notice also that Abraham expressed belief, believing faith before the Mosaic law had even been given. You see, the law had nothing to do with it. It seems that New Calvinism confuses justification with sanctification. For by definition, sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong process by which the believer progresses toward Christ-likeness from the moment of salvation when he's declared right justified until his death. One is sanctified or separated at one's point of trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. We are initially sanctified as his, set apart as his. He or she then has an ongoing progressive separation from the world and its ways and its mindset. This means progress toward moral conformity to the image of Christ throughout life. The extent of a Christian's progressive sanctification depends entirely upon the believer's desire to grow in the Lord. How? By obeying his word and the prompting of the Holy Spirit living within him in his daily living. Faithfulness to the responsibilities the Lord has given is an integral part of sanctification as well. It is the Christian's motives for services, however, that will determine whether or not he or she will be commended and rewarded when at the bema, which some people call the judgment seat of Christ. It is here when the believer joins the Lord that they are completely separated from the world of sin and their sanctification is then completed. We call this point final sanctification. Initial sanctification at point of belief. Ongoing progressive sanctification, growing more like Christ, developing more the mindset of Christ, and conforming more to the image of Christ until our final sanctification that totally separates us from all sin and from our sin nature. Throughout life, as a believer, believers should be motivated how? By gratitude and love for the Lord. Not by fear or the need to get enough evidence to prove they're the elect. For you see, doing that only results in dead works that'll be burned as wood, hay, or stubble 
according to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to stress this. The judgment seat of Christ, more properly called the bema from the Greek word of Christ, is for believers only. It is a time of evaluation that will determine each believer's rewards as well as help determine responsibilities in Christ's coming kingdom. John reminds us of this in Revelation 19 and verse 7. Turn to Revelation 19 and verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. We're talking about here the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're talking about the bride of Christ. That's all true believers from Acts chapter 2 to the catching up of the church at the rapture. And we read in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Do you see that? And his wife hath made herself ready. Ready for what? For the marriage. I believe making herself ready is this very process of progressive sanctification. It's part of the Christian life. Unlike classic Calvinism and New Calvinism's teaching that all will stand before God at the great white throne judgment to determine whether or not they are truly part of the elect and saved, Biblicists hold that believers were judged at the cross of Christ and were merely evaluated or rewarded at the coming bema or judgment seat of Christ. That will be part of making us ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb and then to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. There, motives for our actions will be revealed at the Bema and things will be made right between believers. But nobody at the Bema will be unsaved. I like to think of it because I think this is what the scripture really teaches. It is a time of final preparation before the bride is gloriously clothed in white linen, which represents her righteousness. That's declared in verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. What a glorious day that'll be. At this point, it's well to point out that the fruit or the works that result from genuine salvation should flow naturally from a true believer, not out of fear and trying to earn evidence. We need to remember, though, that God promises to preserve those who are truly his. Regrettably, there are some believers who grieve the Holy Spirit and they bear little fruit. God even takes some to be with him early because they are causing harm or bringing shame to the body of Christ. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 11. There is no promise, however, to those who are false believers, even though they may outwardly demonstrate what seem to be works of goodness. For, you know, even Satan can appear as a minister of light. 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 14. Now, God's promise to preserve the believer should be assuring to each of us. God progressively outlines his promise to protect those who are justified. He does this in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. So turn back to Romans chapter 8. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. Why, it says. Why to be conformed? That, or with the purpose, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, The word here, predestinate, is used here to indicate God's predetermined plan to conform those who he foreknew 
in other words, the bride of his son, to the image of his son, not foreknowed or determined or elected to be saved. See, those he foreknew indicates that he knew beforehand those who would choose freely to be a part of the elect bride of Christ. God predestinated Christ's bride, and I'm going to stress this, as a group to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the whole goal for the bride as a whole. In other words, God said, I'm going to create this group. I will choose this group and arrange that they will become the bride of my son. What will he determine? What will he assure that that group will come to conformity and reach the righteousness, the beauty for his son? He did not pre-select individuals for salvation. No, not at all. Merely the bride consists of all true believers from Acts 2 to the rapture who will be conformed to Christ and he will protect her from all forces that try to separate her from him for their relationship is irrevocable. Romans 5, 8 through 10, 8, 37 to 39 and eleven twenty nine. God will never go back on his word. Jude reminds us in verse 24 and 25, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and ever. Amen. This is a great promise of assurance to us. He will preserve us for his Son. It does not depend upon us and our perseverance. If, if it would, we would fail. Based upon the scriptures, I've concluded that the word perseverance is not a correct term to be used for God's action in preserving us now and in eternity. The new Calvinist use of perseverance suggests the actions or works of the individual in reassuring themselves as being part of the elect. As has been shown in our previous sessions, God does not elect people to salvation. Once a person receives Christ by faith and the Holy Spirit indwells him or her, it is God's responsibility to preserve the believer for eternity as his child and, I would note, as the bride of his son in the church age. Remember, the Spirit was the earnest or the promise of our eventual marriage. The implication of the word preservation is that of protection from harm, peril, or injury. According to Jude 24 and 25, it is God who preserves his people, not individual effort. Is there a place for good works in the Christian life? Well, because Calvinism places emphasis on works to provide evidence for final justification, we need to understand the place of works in God's plan. We've already discussed sanctification and how our faithfulness in serving the Lord out of love, and I would stress gratitude, we determine our future responsibilities in his coming kingdom. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Again, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Works should flow naturally from an earnest believer as he or she yields to the leading of God's word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You see, the word and the Holy Spirit help to conform the believer to Christ's image and prepare the Christian for those future responsibilities we'll have in Christ's kingdom. They're not used as evidence toward final justification. By contrast, as already discussed, the Calvinist view works as the means to gathering evidence for final justification. 
Final justification is achieved by persevering, ongoing, and good works out of fear that a slip or a spiritually dry period could mean one is not elect. Works are done out of obligation or fear instead of love, and frankly, they offer no assurance of eternal life. Interestingly, it has been recorded that nearly all of the Puritan divines, now the Puritans were Calvinistic and they taught perseverance, that all of the divines or leaders went through great doubt and despair on their deathbeds as they realized their lives did not give perfect evidence that they were elect. How sad a life to live as a Christian if perseverance were true. As you can tell from our five programs, oops, I am not a Calvinist. I'm a Biblicist. Was I once a four-point Calvinist? Yes, I was. But I thank the Lord that he revealed the false presuppositions and inconsistencies of the Calvinistic system to me through his word. Once I learned Calvinism's actual definition of each point of tulip, and then I compared them to the scriptures, I realized that they didn't harmonize with the word of God. I acknowledged that I had been misled and needed to change my position. I am now a Biblicist. It's my hope that you too will carefully consider these points of doctrine in the light of God's word. Calvinism, with its remarketed label called New Calvinism, is rapidly infiltrating solid Bible-teaching churches and schools, and it's infecting Christianity throughout the world. Not only is it misrepresenting the character and the nature of God, it is also offering a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. How? by altering the gospel of salvation and the motives for Christian living and serving. According to New Calvinist John Piper, and I quote, The doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saint, are the warp and the woof of the biblical gospel, so that so many saints have cherished for centuries, end quote. He and other New Calvinists present a supposedly loving God who unconditionally pre-selected some for eternal life and others for eternal death. A loving God who sent his son to die only for the elect of the world. Pre-programmed the elect to respond to him as mere robots and causes believers to live lives fearing that they will not provide enough evidence to warrant full justification at the great white throne judgment. This teaching is but a short step to salvation by works. Another crucial issue is Calvin's incorrect teaching on God's judgments and end-time events that are facilitating Satan's plan to bring apostasy into the church and render it ineffective in these crucial latter days of the church age. In a future program, I hope to expand on this great danger. The fact that this aggressive movement is successfully redefining the gospel of salvation should be enough to alert earnest believers to the seriousness of the times that we are now in and our need to contend for the faith. For Paul warned the Galatians and us when he wrote, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. 
Check that out, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And Jude wrote, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That's verse 3 of Jude. It's vitally important to understand the true gospel as revealed in the Bible by God, not in the thoughts and creeds of men such as Calvinism. I ask you, are your beliefs based upon the scriptures alone or on the philosophies of men? Are you a Biblicist or a Calvinist? It really does make a difference. I hope you have found this series helpful, and please feel free to contact us with suggestions, questions, and comments. In the future, we will be doing more on New Calvinism and its dangers, so watch our website for time and dates. Also, if you have found our internet channel helpful, you might prayerfully consider a tax-free donation to help us with our expenses. You can donate through our website, and we would greatly appreciate you being a part of our ministry. Now may the Lord bless you mightily as we see you either here or in the air.